Hello and welcome to the Culture Mirrors podcast. I'm Andy Williams. I'm Sean Wilson. And this week we're going to be talking to you about some of the films and TV shows that have come out over the last couple of weeks, as well as one in particular that's not quite out yet. We've had a sneaky screening of something in advance, so we'll have a, a chat with you about that. Well, but, you have. Well, I have. I'm just the one that manages to get these things. Yeah, thanks. The privileged one, if you were. <laughs> and yet, who's the one who writes for a, for a film website? And who's the one that goes to see films when they're not out yet? Yeah, very true. Boom. Yeah, boom. So Sean wants to kick off this week by talking about Ben Wheatley's latest film, High Rise. So Sean, tell us a bit about Ben Wheatley. Oh, I love this film. It's bits. Uh, this actually might be my favourite film uh, so far this year. I know we're only in March and it seems a bit um, OTT to start saying things like that. But this is a real cracker. So no doubt um, many people have heard what this um, film is and what it's about. But I'll recap. So yeah, as you said, directed by Ben Wheatley, who is a um, British filmmaker who's made the likes of Kill List, Sightseers and A Field in England. Have you seen any of those? I've seen A Field in England. We talked about this last time. Okay, well, I've forgotten. People are listening to our podcasts back to back. It's brand new real time for them. They've just heard us talk about Field in England and you've forgotten. Oh, have you seen A Field in England? Anyway, <laughs> yeah, very dramatic dropping a pen like two inches onto a desk to try and make your point anyway. Um, there you go. Yeah, throw it at the mic. Um, he's a really, um, he's exploded onto the scene in the last few years because with um, his, his films are very, are very they blend genres. They're very surreal. They've got moments of extreme violence in and they've also got very, very black comedy. Um, Kill List was extremely gory and went off in, in, on an incredibly weird tangent towards the end. Obviously, Sightseers was about two murderous caravanners from the Midlands, no less, which I thought was brilliant because my mum's family live in the Midlands. You don't uh, get on the wrong side of a caravanner. No, especially the one who's from around that part of the world. I knew as soon as you said that your mother's family were from that part of the I country, can't help it. I, I knew that the impression was I, I, I identify with, with Brummies and with Midlanders. Um, and the field in England was, of course, the black and white, low budget, the, the Civil War trippy thing. For me, none of Ben Wheatley's previous films have come together in a way that's completely satisfying. I think there have been great bits about... Well, also, the, the one that also gets overlooked is Down Terrace, which was the film he did before Kill List. But bits of them, I think, have been great. But I don't think any of them have quite cohered together. Um, High Rise completely changes all that. So it's the adaptation of the... 1975 J.G. Ballard novel about social collapse within a high rise in London. Uh, the idea was that um, basically, it's it, when Ballard wrote the novel, it was it was a novel that was looking ahead to the future, and it was it was almost acted as a, as a warning for humanity. It's a reminder of how we you know we are all essentially animals and how we give in to our craven and worst impulses. And Wheatley and his co-writer Amy Jump, with whom he's worked before, have really seized on this. Um, and what they've also done is they've injected far more of that blackly comic sensibility that you've got in something like Sightseers, and they've put they've fused that with Ballard's vision. So it is a hybrid of, of the various different sources. So the central story is that Tom Hiddleston, who we both really like, yeah, currently seen. I think it's just coming to an end. The Night Manager, yes, on BBC. yes, yes. Um, uh, he of Loki fame. Yeah, yeah, fantastic actor. And Crimson um, Peak as well last year with Del Toro. Yeah, uh, Only Lovers Left Alive, uh, all sorts, and a really, really good Chris Evans impressionist. Not that Chris Evans, the one from the Avengers. 
he's really good at impersonating his Avengers co-star. Anyway, uh, so it, for those that don't already know, JG Ballard. Yeah, JG Ballard was um, a, a Shanghai-born um, British author who well, his his experiences um, in the Japanese prisoner of war camp inspired his book Empire of the Sun, which of course Steven Spielberg adapted. But J.G. Ballard's novels take a very, very sort of cold and uncompromising look at humanity. He also wrote Crash, which David Cronenberg turned into a movie. There's three very different filmmakers for you. Yes, Spielberg, Cronenberg, Wheatley. And and Wheatley, yeah. And it speaks of Ballard's versatility, really. But but the whole whole issue with Ballard is that where do you draw the line between something that's human and something that's sort of mechanical or, or monumental? Is certainly if you think of Crash, which was the whole idea of, you know, people getting their sexual desires from car crashes which is is, i was wondering how you're going to try and describe that did did i do it well you did it in a very british way (laughs) thank you i fancy that um but the whole so with high rise um tom hiddleston plays robert lang who is a young doctor who moves into this high rise um the film takes as its base the 1970s setting of the of the book but brilliantly it doesn't quite specify when in the 70s it is you can tell by the hair and by the cars that it's not the modern day um, but the idea is that it sort of floats out of time so that it has one foot at the time when Ballard was writing it. And yet, like the book, it also is looking it's a future. It's a futuristic story in a, in a, in a way, because because we we watch it. We watch this 70 set film and it tells us about the age in which we're living now and all the things we're doing wrong. And he moves in um, and then he realizes that, that the very nature of the high rise with its various um, flaws lends itself to this class system with the, the poorer people on the bottom and the rich people on the very, very top. And this fosters an atmosphere of isolation and resentment that eventually spills over into full-on tribal carnage and bloodshed and absolute chaos and everything deteriorates. Um, so at the bottom of the block, you have uh, Luke Evans and uh, Elizabeth Moss from Mad Men. Yes. Are you going to be now doing a Luke Evans impression for us? I can't do a Luke Evans impression. I can only do a Welsh. That's, yeah. a, that's an awful Luke Evans impression. That's an awful <laughs> Welsh accent. Thank Let's you. Let's not get into that. Yeah, it's probably more Pakistani, but anyway. Um, hey, th- hey, we are not judgmental on this podcast. <laughs> no, no, only you are. Only I'm me. Not, yeah, only you. Um, but they're on the bottom and they aspire to get to a higher floor. He's a documentary filmmaker. He's a, he's a, bit, he's a bit predatory. She's pregnant and he's, you know, he leads the revolution to change things within the high rise. Right on the very, very top, you have Jeremy Irons, who is the architect, uh, Anthony Royal, who lives in this really, really sort of sleek penthouse, which has got this Victorian folly garden outside it, in which can be found his wife riding a horse. Uh, the horse is found on the 42nd floor. Um, like, and, and then this, this throws in this throws into one of the things when you read the book. The book is is a social satire; it's an allegory. And well, obviously, when you read the book, it's much harder to it's much easier to to spend your your disbelief because there is something about reading something that's in your head, and there is something about watching something that's external. So, the whole suspension of disbelief does become a bit trickier in the film. But essentially. It's a look at how society breaks down and how um, the various flaws break out in all this infighting. And Tom Hiddleston's character drifts through the middle of it. And he is seemingly the most amoral character. He seemingly doesn't owe allegiance to either side. But as Luke Evans' character said, that might actually make him the most dangerous out of everybody. Uh, That line's in the trailer. And I thought it was absolutely brilliant um, for a number of different reasons. I think that it gets the spirit of the book brilliantly have you read the book yeah i read the book last year for the first time in it and the book the book has a really really 
icy, chilly sense to it. It's got a very detached sense. But I think what Ben Wheatley and Amy Jump do is they also they inject the humour into it. But of course, when you watch a film, you're not getting the prose. You're not hearing the author's voice uh, in your head. But what they do is they use the visual language of the film to fill in where the language is absent. So you have... Um, the first half, which introduces the decadence of the high rise or the opulence, um, is done with a lot of slow motion, a lot of um, visually lush. It's very, very surreal uh, outlooks. It reminded me actually of um, Have you ever seen The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, Peace Greenway film? No. Late 80s Thatcher satire, savage film, um, but a great film. It reminded me a lot of that. There's a lot of weird slow motion tracking shots and strange things going on. There's a moment where. Uh, Tom Hiddleston dances down a hallway with a load of air stewardesses that comes out of nowhere. And you sort of think, right, OK, um, every every sort of seemingly enticing visually setting you up for the inevitable fall that comes when barbarity breaks out in high rise. And that's when the ha- the camera work becomes more handheld and more raw and more shaky. And you get these visual images that tell you where you're headed. So you have a, there's a tracking shot across a load of fruit in the supermarket as the fruit has started to rot. And the central image is, is the pool. The, the, the swimming pool becomes increasingly rank and, in, and infested. That was one of the main things that I remember from the book. So you have a real real commitment to the spirit of Ballard. You have a really interesting visual language. The production design, the visuals, um, costumes are all brilliant. Um, Clint Mansell's score, which I won't mention in too much detail because I know we're going to get to that a bit later, I loved. I can't wait. It's sort of... It's almost like it does what a film score is meant to do. It's almost suspended above the action. It doesn't prop up the, the film. It, it's in, it's a whole other layer of dialogue. And the, the, the score tells you where the film is going. I think this is a spoiler for a later section. Is it? Oh, I'm spoiling my own thing. Yeah. I, let me just say that the, 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 the score is really, really good in um, embodying and enhancing the spirit of the film. I think the performances are fantastic. I think there are there were a couple of missteps for me. I thought the bit in the novel where you actually do get the, the when when the disintegration occurs within the high rise that sort of creeps up on you in the book whereas in the film it's a bit blunt it happens quite quickly and there's a lot of there are a lot of like montage sequences to try and show the passage of time i thought that was a li- maybe a little bit clunky and there's also a, a cover of sos by portishead um yes the abba sos um which i thought seemed a bit clever clever it was almost like someone went hey who would have thought that the song SOS could embody the themes of J.G. Ballard. And I sort of thought, well, if, if that sort of took me out of the film a little bit. Was it better than Pierce Brosnan's version? Oh, yes, yeah, a lot better than that. Yeah. Well, in that you do also have Meryl Streep. Well, Meryl Streep does it all right, yeah. Well, she does it like Shakespeare. I don't <laughs> want to talk. I really don't want to talk. <laughs> um, that's yeah. not SOS either, is it? Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, it's, no, hang on. That no, is no, SOS. no, no, that is SOS. I thought that was SOS. It's the one that takes it all. Oh, well, yes, of course. Um, yeah, so I thought it was a really, really good... And you know when you you come out of a film, in spite of how... And the movie is gruesome. I mean, the movie is... is it, it becomes seedy and challenging and provocative and difficult, albeit blackly comic. But you know when you come out of a film on the other side and you're, you're smiling in spite of how grim it is, you know, I've watched something that's genuinely genuinely bold and genuinely exciting and genuinely transgressive and i'm actually thinking about what it all means it hasn't got i watch so many films that go in one ear and out the other that don't have any impact on me whatsoever i'm still thinking about this film now but you're also still thinking about pixels so 
swings and roundabouts. Thanks for that. Yeah, um, yeah there's good thinking and bad thinking, all right, let's say. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, um, and I... I came out of this with a big smile on my face, feeling, you know, nauseated, repulsed, exhilarated, amused, um, full of admiration that a very, very difficult book has managed to make it to the screen because this has long been deemed unfilmable. They've been trying to get it to the screen for the best part of, I think, 40 years, or the novel was published in 1975. I think Nick Rogue, who made Don't Look Now, tried to do it, and even he couldn't get it off the ground. That sounds like it'd have been great. Yes, a Nick Rogue, yes, yeah, exactly. A Nick Rogue high-rise film. And and the, the spirit of Nick Rogue, I think, is very much alive in this, as it is in a lot of Ben Wheatley's films. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was absolutely fantastic, and I can't wait to see it again. Just a question. Yes. How do horses get up the, that many stairs? Well, this is the whole thing, a, you know. A horse can go upstairs, but it can't go down. Well, there's a lift, but, I, yeah. there's, oh, there's right. Yeah, I, I, whether the lift is big enough to take a horse, I don't know, but that's the whole thing. It's like... Do you reckon it was choppered in? They picked it up and winched it, and who knows? You know, again, it's the whole thing. You can't take things like that on a logical level because the whole point of the story is not really to be taken on as as a as a logical linear piece of narrative. The whole point of the story is what does it tell us about our own desires? Is the high rise itself actually causing the breakdown? Is the very nature of living on a different floor from somebody else a class system in and of itself? You know, is Tom Hiddleston's character moves into the high-rise in an attempt to try and preserve his, anon- his anon- anonymity. I'll get my words out. It's easy for you to say. Thank you. <laughs> Boom. Um, but is that ultimately a foolhardy attempt? Is, you know, is an attempt to live anonymously really just a mask for our own rampaging desires? And it's, you know, is it a natural state when everyone descends into this sort of chaos? So that's an I don't know to the horse then. Well, yeah. Thank you, thank you for t- taking my, my my eloquent prose down a peg or two. Yeah. So, so and I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. Cool. Yeah, but it's a good film. It's it's more than good. It's absolutely brilliant, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Okay. So, a slightly separate question, but a very serious one at the yeah. same time. Um, I've read a lot, and I've heard a lot again from you just then about um it being a very 1970s film, but also futuristic at the same time. Mm. In that respect, does it have, obviously having not seen it, does it have any calls to A Clockwork Orange when you look for its visual styles? Yeah, actually, that's a really good that's a really good comparison. I mean, the Kubrick thing extends a lot throughout you know, the slow motion sequences. But yes, yeah, certainly the design of the high rise, it's very, it's very brutalist concrete structure. I mean, that calls to mind where the initial sections of A Clockwork Orange was set in London at that time. You have lots of like overpasses and things like that. Yeah, mm. I think it definitely owes a debt to that. Um, without a doubt cool yeah. I'd not seen it written or said anywhere so there, there we go. you go you're the first yeah. well there we go I've just teed that up for you to knock it home for a home run <laughs> yeah so moving on from a, a very very good film by the sounds of it in High Rise we're going to now talk about the brand new unyet not yet seen not yet released film of Eddie the Eagle so this will be directed by Dexter Fletcher, he of Wild Bill and Sunshine on Leith. Oh, I love both of those films, can I just say. Wasn't he also in Lockstock and Press Gang? Yes, he was it was he involved with Blue Peter as well. Possibly. Blue Peter? Possibly. Yeah, yeah. So general British celebrity. Yeah, yeah, stalwart, yeah. But moved on to, to directing films. So Eddie the Eagle tells the story of Eddie Edwards, who was so brutally determined to be an Olympian for his entire life, he didn't care how he was going to do it, he was just going to do it. So after getting knocked back after knocked back, he finally settles on ski jumping. And this then means that it takes him off to Germany. He meets uh, 
uh, Hugh Jackman as his uh, his coach, who is a completely made-up character, a guy called Bronson. He's a, a former jumper himself. He tries to teach Eddie the ways of the jumps and how he can try and make sure that he actually lands on his feet instead of the alternative. So um, this is a, a composite story, really. It's uh, it's very much got the, the the facts behind it, and the thing that actually makes it stand out a lot of uh, ahead of a lot of other sports films is the heart that it's got, especially Freddy. There's, it'd be very easy to make a mockery of this man. He's a he's not a very well learned man, well taught man. Um, he he is very focused on his single vision of attending the Olympics, and he will do what he can to to get there, and that's kind of his focus. His alternative in life is to be a plasterer, so it's it's sort of one or the other. It's he has no real room for both, and it'd be easy to make him the butt of every joke, but they don't. It's really really about his determinism about getting to the Olympics and and jumping as best as he can. He doesn't really care about medals. He doesn't really care about winning, and that is really the heart of the film. And I think that Dexter Fletcher has done a really really good job in uh, in taking this as a, a story that a lot of people at the time would probably know. I mean, Eddie the Eagles is someone that whose name I knew. Did you know his name? I, I knew the name, but I don't think our generation, we didn't grow up with him. It was our parents would know who he was. So, I mean, I'd heard of him. I'd heard, vaguely. but I didn't, I didn't know the story. I yeah, yeah. So, so I thought it was just quite interesting the way that they've taken this this story that is let's be honest, relatively well known, but it... it it's not necessarily about the way the narrative goes. It's about the, the character that Eddie is. Mm. And he's played brilliantly by Taron Egerton, absolutely perfectly. Um, he, he really, really walks the line of, of being kind of the bumbling fool, but at the same time, he's so determined and he's just got that single vision, which you can't help but admire, even throughout... When you know he's going to fail something, when he looks at the 90-metre the jump and says, yeah, I'll jump that, you sort of know he's not going to. <laughs> but... Um, it, it's it's from that that it, the film takes its real real strengths, and uh, I think we were having a brief discussion about the soundtrack credits uh, a bit earlier on. Um, a heated one. Well, yeah, but uh, do you want to touch on that? Well, I thought the soundtrack in itself sounded very very eighties, and it's funny that being set in the eighties. Yeah, but there's there's being set in the eighties, and then there's just taking stuff from the eighties. It well. If by taking stuff you mean it's just nicked the whole of the soundtrack, it hasn't, because Matthew Marchison has actually composed a score for this. So even if it's just because it sounds like something, doesn't mean that it's been lifted. It also doesn't mean else. it's good. But there we go. Right. Okay. So who, yeah, who who do you like on the soundtrack? Then come on, come out with it. I well, completely separate to his involvement in this soundtrack it, is the reason that I'd like Gary Barlow. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like him more for his work on Take That. But mm. there we go. Mm. And also, he's on Stardust. Yes, he was. I I really like Stardust. There we go. So we've agreed. Thank you. So um, <laughs> again, Taron Edgerton, really, really good in this film. You can really see that he is now a bona fide leading man. He can carry a film. He did it almost in Kingsman, albeit with the backing of Colin Firth. Now he is he is a star. So let's watch this space for the future. We may well see him as Han Solo yet. Well, yeah, yeah. Despite the fact that Harrison Ford has said don't do it with that that's a typical Harrison Ford response isn't it so um, I thought Taron Egerton was fantastic in Kingsman I thought he had a real natural charisma about him he was also really good in um, Testament of Youth the um, World War One film um, with Alicia Vikander yes yeah he was really good so he is very he's clearly very versatile I mean those are three completely different roles and he can also say 
Oh, I didn't realise you were from Mars. What does that mean? Oh, I'm from Wales. Oh, yeah, it's the same thing, isn't it? <laughs> oh, that was a dirty look. <laughs> so Eddie the Eagle is um, it's very good. It, it does follow its conventions of a, a typical sports movie. You've got your training montage. I was going to say, how does it chalk up compared to the likes of, you know, Hoosiers or Rudy or any of those other... Well, it, 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 it has those conventions and it, it loves the fact that it's actually going through them. There is the moment during the montage. I won't ruin what song is being used for the montage. Is it not? Is it the Team America montage song? No. Oh, what a shame. I'll, I'll tell you a bit later. Yep. Um, but it, the the song choice and th- the visuals that go with it, brilliant. So, so good. And and again, that that's testament to the comedy of the film in that it's funny, but it's never particularly laughing at anybody. And I think that is the, the real, real strength. So that was Eddie the Eagle. Sean is now going to talk us through 10 Cloverfield Lane, the sequel, sidequel, sister film, who knows what, to Cloverfield. So, Sean, tell us about that. Yeah, spiritual successor, however you want to say it. Um, yeah, I think, it, it, well, the production history of this film is is obviously very, very interesting because, no, well, one thing, nobody knew it had been, no, no, no one going to see it knew it had been made until very, very recently when the trailer came out. It was genuinely, I mean, the fact that a movie trailer can take people by surprise now is very, is a very, very heartening thing. It's a very J.J. Abrams sort yes, of thing. Yes, yeah, and I, I admire them for that. But it started off as a, a very low-budget film called um, The Cellar, a, low, a, a script about people trapped in an underground bunker. Um it went by the um, uh, and then somewhere along the way it was picked up by Bad Robot, which is J.J. Abrams' production label. They they did um, Cloverfield and obviously on Star Trek movies as well. They also had but, a hand in the Mission Impossible's. Yes, since he's directed one, that, um, they've also got a hand in Lost. Lost, yeah, uh, yeah, all the sorts. Of- so, so they're like a big powerhouse, and obviously somewhere along the way that the, the 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 project turned into an amalgamation between this original script called The Cellar. And something related to Cloverfield and director Dan Trachtenberg came on board. Um, there's there's um, several writers credited, and one of whom is Damien Chazelle, who wrote, wrote and directed Whiplash, which was absolutely brilliant. Really? Yeah. I didn't know he had a hand in the script. Yeah, yeah, he had a hand in there somewhere. I think he might have written it, uh, um, had a, uh, done one of the drafts, and I think it was re- it was redone. I can see that actually in some of the words that John Goodman's character yes. comes out with. You, the, the vitriol within the words, you can sort of see that. Yeah, yeah. There's there's some of that J.K. Simmons anger, isn't there? In there, um, not but, quite my temper. Yeah. It's like, uh, well, glad you can fill us in your busy schedule, darling. <laughs> uh, I, I won't, I won't see. Was he Homer Simpson? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he was actually Homer Simpson doing those slides. Cool. I didn't realize I could do a Homer Simpson impression. Can I do that from now on? No, <laughs> never. Have said that. Um, so when the, they bring out Simpsons movie two, you can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so the, the central gist of it is that Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character is fleeing her apartment at, at the beginning of the movie because she apparently has broken up with her um, boyfriend. Voiced by a very, very famous actor who I won't give away. Oh, Bradley Cooper. Thank you. Well, it's in. It's the opening. It's literally the opening I, scene. I, 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 I knew he. I knew he was in the film because I'd seen it on IMDb, but I didn't know it was him doing that because I wasn't really acknowledging it. So did thanks. you? Did you not just sit there going, "Oh, that's Bradley"? Cooper's no, because I wasn't. I wasn't particularly paying attention to his voice. I was paying attention to what she was doing. She's running around. She's grabbing her keys. Um, and then the title. Yes. Um, so she's driving somewhere. She careers off the road um, and then wakes up sometime later. Um, but atta- in between that is a great title sequence where she goes off the road. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, 
Bear McCreary score, which is great. I mean, there's been a, a plethora of great scores this month. Is he of The Walking Dead? Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, Bear McCreary works a lot in in television. He's he also does Battlestar Galactica, but he he does a lot of films as well. Really creepy um, Bernard Herman-esque suspenseful score that's much more sophisticated than you would expect from this sort of I mean, normally with movies now they're done with a lot of like tired musical stingers and ambience this is a really really well considered score but so she um, she goes off the road she wakes up somewhere sometime later with a drip attached to her um, in comes John Goodman into the room who says that he has apparently saved her life from some sort of catastrophe that has happened in the outside world and you realize that she is actually locked into an underground bunker with him and another character played by john gallagher jr but is john goodman's character telling the truth has the world actually ended or has he has he seized on both of them for somewhat sinister purposes um what is going on um and it's it's a very difficult film to describe because we can't really describe any more of the plot than that yeah but i think what you've you've mentioned is that the real joy of the film is that the fact you don't know and the fact that the the director Trachtenberg has decided to play it in a, such a way of of is he telling the truth isn't he there's the, the threat level sort of increases and then decreases and then yes. increases in yep. such a really really well done way in that it you never quite know where you're going and you never quite know what's going to happen yeah it uh, the movie. Um, I think the movie is really, really good in in its direction, in its writing. Yeah, well, like you say, the way it plays with our sympathies of John Goodman's character, the way that yeah, like you say, that on the one hand, he he might be manipulative and very dangerous, and then you find out things about him that swing your sympathies the other way, and then all of a sudden your sympathies go back the other way. That's that's a testament to how well crafted a piece of psychological drama it is. And the, he's great in it. Yes, he is. I mean, John Goodman is really, really good at playing cracked damaged characters I mean you think of Barton Fink or just about to point to Barton Fink yeah it owes a lot to his role in Barton Fink and to an extent his role in The Big Lebowski well he's a complete nutter in that as well although that was obviously a comic performance Danny yeah shut yeah. Up. yeah yeah that wasn't her toe dude <laughs> whose toe was it this <laughs> is brilliant he's great at that I mean I think a lot of people tend to think of John Goodman in terms of being playing a lot of generally benevolent characters but he's played a lot of dark roles as well yeah it, and he is an imposing guy. I mean, when you, when you see him on screen, he he is threatening. Um, but he'll always be Sully. Yeah, yeah. That, and, and again, it's, it's that role in Monsters, Inc. that probably ten, people tend to feel affectionately towards him rather than remembering the sort of Barton Fink roles. But but also you've got to look at the the particular scene in, in Ten Cloverfield Lane where problem solving makes him do something. Yes. That's something that he does. It's brilliant. Yes, yeah, it is. Um, actually, and the whole thing of problem solving extends to Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character, actually, because she's um, she's very practical and she can use her environment to her advantage, which, of course, increases the suspense because you think, how is she going to get out of this situation? How is she going to do that? And then the third wheel is, um, is John Gallagher Jr.'s character, who seemingly is a bit of a doofus and you can't quite figure out what his role is um and again we we can't really go any anything beyond that but he's you know like the other two actors he's very very good at holding on to the you know the mystery that that's happening and um there are several excruciatingly tense sequences i thought there's there's a dinner table the sequence. dinner scene was again what i was just about yeah to say. it's um it's very very tense and i think that the success of that particular scene hinges entirely on Winstead's reaction shots because she's sat in between the two men. They're sat on either side of the table. She's only just turned up in this bunker and it's her way she's looking at both of them trying to suss out 
them individually and also their relationship with each other, which is really, really well done. Um, I think that it's, um, it's uh, for me, it was a really well directed and well written film. It's not perfect. Now, I'm going to I'm going to be careful here. Um, obviously, the production history that the film brings with it, the fact that it started off as one film, then it picked up the Cloverfield branding somewhere along the way does I will say it leads to a somewhat awkward mix. Yeah, I think we can it, say quite comfortably that it 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 definitely doesn't quite meld as quite no. well as it should have done. No. Um, they they <laughs> the the fact that it's got the title that it does will inevitably point to a certain aspect, and that there are the film that we've described, the tense psychological thriller, is not necessarily what goes hand in hand with it Mm. at a later stage so yeah i think whilst it's still entertaining on its level and whilst there are things that carry you through it it's not it's not quite as good as it was for the first hour and 40 odd yeah i i think um i think the cloverfield branding does it more harm than good i mean clearly some whiz kid along the way thought you know what cloverfield was obviously a fame footage movie about a giant monster invading new york did very well considering it's low budget um someone thought you know by sticking that in the title that will create an association with audiences and that might get more bums on seats which is probably worked yeah yeah exactly but for the in terms of the film itself i don't think it does the movie any favors There's it's box office favors clearly but i think it, it might do more harm than good in relation to the movie um but we were saying the third act bit is is a little bit sort of slightly off well that that's where that's where the seams start to come away mm. i thought a little bit not not terribly i i enjoyed it all the way through i have to say because i think it builds up enough goodwill it, it, it's terrific for for enough of the movie to help me carry through you know the slightly wobblier bits yeah but right at the end the the actual final part of it mm. were you on board with with that on or not i I wasn't quite as engrossed as I was before, but because Mary Elizabeth Winstead is is a very believable character, she doesn't. It's not. It's not. A, it's not a performance that's reliant on ticks or quirks or annoying character mannerisms. She is just playing a young woman in an extraordinary situation. She's having to get through it. So I thought her her presence helped ground it. Even when the story started to maybe come a little bit unstuck, she just about held it together. Um, and I, I was engaged with her character, and I, I, I was on her side, and um, I liked her resourcefulness. I thought she, I thought she was great. Um, and again, the, the, to go back to the score, I mean, Bear McCreary's score just ratchets up the tension incrementally really, really well. He does a really good job with it. Um, and I think that more thrillers ought to be scored in this sort of quite, you know, not operatic way, but quite sophisticated way. The way that thrillers used to be done when when Bernard Herrmann was was doing the, the, those sorts of films, but um, yeah, I, I was I was have to say I was I was very very impressed with it. I, I was never bored throughout. I was constantly gripped. There was the point towards the end where I thought, mm, "Come on, we mm. we need to get there now," and yeah. then it does. So yeah, you can't really complain. Mm. But other than that, I completely agree with you. Great film and really entertaining, and the the way that it it does quite play with whose side you're on the way that it is very clearly a psychological thriller does really help mm. so thoroughly on board with it so next we're going to talk about Anomalisa the Oscar nominated uh, for best animated film but not Oscar winning no because that went to our Culture Mirrors film of the year for last year which was Inside Out yes 
So, um, but Anomaly, so directed by Charlie Kaufman and Duke Johnson. It was based on a stage play, which was basically a read-through. So it was not actually a play. It was more of a, they sit down and talk through it. So um, it had the, the same three actors in it. And uh, it, it followed roughly the same storyline, which is basically a gentleman by the name of Michael Stone, who is, we find out a, a little bit later on, uh, he is a motivational speaker that's just in a hotel for an evening, away from his family, and he just goes off and does a few things. Not a lot actually happens, but what you do get from the film is a sense of Stone's character. Now, he's not a particularly likeable man, I think, whilst we've... Uh, when we were discussing this earlier, this is what we uh, we agreed upon. Um, but he is a man that is deeply, deeply flawed. He he doesn't know what he wants from life. He doesn't know where he is at the moment, and he doesn't quite have a grip on reality. He's he's a bit ugh. he's often to himself. He doesn't quite understand what's going on in the world. And I think this is uh, very much brought up in the film. Um, he actually says the Fregoli which is the uh, the disillusionment of doubles. So it's seeing the same person everywhere else. And hearing their voice, hearing that some one person's voice in the mouths of everybody else. Which is addressed in, in the, the film in itself with the fact that we have only three people having different voices. So we've got Tom Noonan, who voices everybody. We've got David Thewlis, who voices um, Michael Stone. And we've got Jennifer Jason Lee that voices Lisa. So... Lisa shows up, she's got a completely different voice to everybody else because we're seeing everything from Michael's perspective and it just it captures you in that moment. That moment for me is the standout of the film where he's searching and searching and searching trying to find this voice that's completely different. He's knocking on doors and he's looking for his friend and then he finds Lisa, perfectly voiced as well by Jennifer Jason Lee. Now one of the problems that you had with the film was to do with its animation. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, well, the an- the animation itself, I thought, was was not a problem, actually. I think, in, in many ways, the animation makes the film, uh, uh, and I think the problem is that it become almost becomes style over substance because the animation is so distinctive. They used um, this stop-motion animation, and they used um, basically a fa- it's a face replacement whereby the faces of the puppets come off and mm. um, it's done frame by frame so that their their faces give, give the illusion of movement. Because as we know, film is a series of still images. Yeah, which is what um, Duke Johnson said on that famously prickly Kermode de Mayo interview. Um, didn't do himself any favours there, but it is beautifully animated. Very, um, very well animated. Yeah, and what they've done, as Duke Johnson said on that interview, is they've deliberately left the seams of the puppets on the forehead so you can see the lines, you can see the joins where the puppets come connect up which is a really interesting idea so it's so it's 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 both unreal and real at the same time so it's drawing attention to its own artificiality and yet the very nature of stop motion animation it, it's a simulation of reality i mean you think of um uh, what Leica um did with the likes of Coraline or Paranorman that it, it's a fantastical version of reality but contained within it there is an emotional truth about our own nature and i think the problem for me with Anomalisa was that made the movie because underneath it I don't think there is a lot of... The story is very, very thin. It's incredibly thin, I think. On that level, I'll agree with you, but on the fact that saying it's all service, I'll completely disagree with you. I mean, you. there are there are interesting ideas in it, but I think all of the interesting ideas come as a result of the animation. I mean, the fact that um, you have all of the, the other different puppets talk with Tom Noonan's voice. I mean, it's disturbing and it's hilarious at the same time. It's obviously a classic, classic Charlie Kaufman, so you think of, like, 
being John Malkovich or Eternal Sunshine yeah. as well as Synecdoche, New York. Um, I mean, it's a very, very, well, you said this earlier, it's a very, very, very Charlie Kaufman idea. I mean, he can only, mm. you know, he's got a very, very insular it's, uh, point of view in terms of his his writing. I mean, his movies are very, very darkly comic, bordering on misanthropic. I mean, they take a very bleak view of, of human nature so that even when you're laughing, they're all, it's often a bit, it's quite bitter laughing. Yeah, I think that's what he's particularly good at in that he will be able to show you films from a singular point of view of a usually a man that is slightly grumpy and disconnected from society that's what he does really really well deeply unlikable men he can write and actually make them tolerable Mm. which i think is is a talent in itself i mean is as much as it's not possibly the film you're gonna pop in of a friday night with a bag of popcorn on your sofa yeah no one's gonna do that with this film (laughs) I did it on Saturday night. But oh, did you? Oh, fair enough. I'll take that back. But I was in the cinema. Oh, but, um <laughs> With my popcorn. Yeah. Um, but I just think that the, the film does have something behind it. I think that Michael is a very, very human character. He's got human flaws and he's got uh, the family behind him. And he's, he's the reasons that he is feeling what he's feeling are given to us to figure out. Um, I also think that there's uh, a scene relatively near the third act, which I'm not going to go into too much detail on, but... Did you see a comparison to Brazil there at all? Um, I'd have to. I'd have to be reminded of what the bit was. Um, he was going into an office. Oh yes, yeah, I know what you mean. Yes, well, actually, I didn't think about it like that at the time, but yeah, um, I'd, I'd, I'd agree. Actually, yeah, that, that's two great. That's two great comparisons you've done with obviously with Kubrick and High Rise earlier. Yeah. Well, what can I say? I'm full of good ideas. Yeah. What today you are? Well, yeah, it's an off day. <laughs> So normally, I I really really enjoyed. It. I'm I'm no real rush to return to it, but um, no. I did really enjoy the the film. I thought that as a, a piece of filmmaking, it was very interesting in terms of its visuals, in terms of how it got to screen. But at the same time, I thought it was there was something behind it. There was something that made this story worth telling. You know what? I think the, the one of the more underrated aspects of the movie is that I know a lot of people have written about it in terms of both the animation and how it's a characteristic Charlie Kaufman script. It, the film is a very, very important reminder of the power of voices and how voices contain soul and how voices can tell you about a person. I mean, it helps that they've cast three actors with a very very distinctive vocal delivery I mean the fact that David Thewlis who's obviously from the north of England please no impression no I won't do David Thewlis no I can't do David Thewlis no you can't no I can't Um, but the fact that he's been allowed to preserve his own accent amidst it's softened slightly yeah but he he sounds like David Thewlis and obviously Tom Noonan has got that slightly chilly vocal register anyway which has obviously been used in things like manhunter but the fact that he sounds like everybody else and then within within this sea of of everybody saying the same you have david thulis being the northerner northerner and then you have jennifer jason lee as as lisa um and it's it's about i think that i don't think many enough of the reviews that i've read have quite picked up on the fact that to cast an animated movie effectively in terms of a voice is really really important and it's what Pixar do so well. Yeah, exactly. I, I think I think it works especially well in this, and I think that 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 part of Anomalisa helped for me redeem what I felt was a technically impressive and thoughtful, if rather shallow and more trite film than I think a lot of people have seen it for. Personally, I think you're wrong. We agree to disagree. Well, okay, which is the the benefit of opinion. Yeah. So. <laughs> 
there ends the thought for today. Yeah, well, I've had two good ideas. I'm not going to strike it lucky with a third. So <laughs> let's move swiftly on to a horror film that no one's going to see. Yeah, uh, but I have. Well, you saw Pixels. Thanks. You're not going to let that lie, are you? The... It's groundbreaking film. Did you see Mordecai in the end? By the way, no, I've still not. Oh, good. Yeah, no, no, no. Don't, don't say you've still not seen it. Don't see it. Okay. Don't make it sound like you are going to see it. I will. I will sit and watch. You are it. not allowed to criticize me for watching Pixels if you make that step. Have you seen Hot Tub Time Machine two? No, that's on Netflix. Don't, watch don't, it. I haven't even seen Hot Tub Time Machine two, and I know it's not as bad as Mordecai. It might be. You can't. You can't <laughs> I, judge it. Mordecai. No. Anyway. Um, anyway, this one isn't very good. Um, the boy we're talking about, by the way. Is it better than Pixels? Um, it's a relative term. Um, no, I'll get back to you on that. Um, cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is the um, foolish new horror movie from the director of The Devil Inside. Did you see The Devil Inside from a few years ago? No. I looked at it and thought, mm, no, yeah. not for me. Um, endorsed by the Vatican, apparently. Found footage horror movie beyond stupid. So this is what you want from your horror films moving it, forward. In, endorsed by the Vatican. Endorsed yeah, by... <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's a, utterly witless. A papal endorsement. Yeah. Um, <gasps> if it came with a free hat, I'd go and watch it. <laughs> what like um, Bishop Brennan wears in Father Ted oh sorry you haven't seen Father Ted have you no, do you know why why because it finished when I was like 12 D- have you not heard of DVDs or repeats nope and you, and you blame me for not watching things on catch up yep it's just hypocrisy yep it's just pure hypocrisy anyway why are we talking about this because it's probably better than the boy <laughs> and talking about the boy um, yes yeah, so during the director of the devil inside um, not showing any discernible improvement on the devil inside so Lauren Cohen her from the walking dead um, is Maggie Maggie from the walking dead thank you um, comes over to a version of Britain that bears absolutely no relation to the Britain in real life. How do you know this? Well, the very first shot of the movie is a black London taxi cab going down a country lane. Have you ever seen a black London taxi cab out in the British countryside before? No. There you go. That tells you that the people who made this film have probably never, ever been to Britain in their life. Um, she turns up at a big gothic country pile that, again, looks nothing like a gothic country pile that you get in Britain. And indeed, I looked it up afterwards. It was filmed in Canada. Um, Canada's so, nearly Britain though they've got the Queen well yeah it's only separate you've got the slight issue of a, of a vast geographical distance don't pin things down by distance <laughs> it's not bickering and argue about who lives where um, but yeah so she turns up at this big country house um, owned by two very very weird people actually one of whom is played by Jim Norton who played Bishop Brennan in Father Ted ah thank you you, 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 you thank you for bringing that up earlier we made the, I didn't bring it up we made this full <laughs> circle by complete accident <laughs> there you go it's how we do it you couldn't plan for this no no you couldn't this is fantastic um, so these two very very weird um, chipper British people who of course um, are only ever dressed in plaid and are all about, you know, manners and decorum and everything. So they've uh, cast you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, me in fifty years time. Yeah, yeah. So, you now. Yeah, me now, yeah. Yeah, there wasn't a tea strainer involved, by the way. That's an in joke for people, by the way. Go back and listen to our previous podcasts if you don't know what that means. See see how I'm encouraging people to go back and read it. Well to it. well done. Yeah, yeah. Well done. You're encouraging people to listen to Yeah, us. to listen to our podcast, yeah. Um so they're all they're all weird and well British, um, or me, and so <laughs> just um, and they um, she's basically come over to um, Britainland to look after their young son. Apparently, wouldn't you, Adam and Eve? It 
the young son is actually a doll. Like the conjuring. <laughs> well, yeah, sort of. Um, who's called Brahms. Yes, Brahms, as in the classical composer Brahms, because apparently that's what Americans think British people are called. Brahms. That's not even his surname, that's his first name. What's his surname? I don't know, Brahms, Brahms. <laughs> Brahms Mozart. <laughs> I think that's... The, the, just, is it any good? It's, it's, it really isn't. And the, the whole gist of it is that, okay, so they go away. She's got she's put in this really weird situation where she thought she was coming over to look after a human kid. She's actually looking after a doll. But gradually thinks, mm, maybe this doll is actually alive because it seems to be moving around. She starts hearing various weird things. Um, we know that she is an American, uh, a complete fish out of water in um, Englandshire because we see her um, in in response to a question about, do you know poetry? She goes, well, I know that I know the lines to Green Eggs and Ham, which is of course apparently some American thing, American poem. I've do heard we, it referred to in other films. Do we get to see her walking around like Aldi with one of those little trolleys? Like like what? With, with like with one of those little trolleys when she's walking around Aldi with the little kid in the front. Oh no no no! That would have been great actually. Ooh, yeah, I'm just trying to think of the true Britain. Yeah yeah. Well, they, they, honestly, this is not true Britain at all. This is just utterly ludicrous. And and she's also seen making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches at one point. Because how else? How else do you use a shorthand to tell somebody is American apart from to show them having peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? Peanut butter and jelly sandwiches are very nice. Are they? Yeah. Are you American? Are you a secret American? I'm a secret one. Yeah, secret American. Yeah. Only, I would be Welsh, but secretly American. Only on Thursdays. <laughs> yeah. Oh damn. S- it's Thursday. Damn it, yeah. Go on then, where's the accent? No. <laughs> You're right. Um, so it's just it's just utterly foolish. I was like, if, if if the filmmakers can't even be bothered to make the milieu and the environment of the of the story convincing, why on earth should I be invested in it? And weirdly, the whole concept of a doll being alive was actually more more believable than the whole British stuff of it. I was like, the doll stuff, I can put up with that. If that doll's walking from one room to the other, I don't have a problem with that. But the whole thing about it's obviously not not being filmed in Britain. That was a, that's a far more fundamental problem with the movie. And so consequently, when all the supernatural stuff starts kicking off towards the end and you have um, Rupert Evans playing the um, the greengrocer who comes around to drop off the um, the groceries, who, of course, wears knitted jumpers. Because uh, we live in the 1940s. Exactly, exactly that. Um, and, of course, he, he puts on that British charm of, you know, I, my, my, hair is, my hair is done in the Hugh Grant style and you know i'm wearing tweed and everything it's just do you reckon they saw like a 1970s warburton's advert <laughs> i reckon they probably did and then decided yeah. that's the vision of england yeah. we want you know what happened someone the director probably got one of those eyewitness guides to britain you know that you get and flick through it and probably probably put some some bookmarks in some pages and go right there's my script you know i'm, I'm gonna do it like that plus one doll <laughs> yeah exactly yeah which is obviously from like it goes all the way back to things something like magic which is a way way superior film I mean, Magic and I suppose Dead of Night, the Ealing film, they are the the ultimate creepy doll movies. Um, I think me and Earl and Dying Girl's pretty. Uh, no, no, uh, Lars and the Real Girl. Oh, I've not seen Lars and the Real Girl actually. Is it good? Um, yeah, it's good. Yeah. But it, it, separate conversation. That's a different sort of doll, though, isn't it? It's a very different <laughs> sort of doll. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's creepy, no less. Yeah, yeah. It's the sort of thing that he would have gone to find in Anomalisa, wouldn't it? Which is the joke we didn't. To. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, and then again, coming full circle, we can't plan this. No, we can't. Um, so you know, it's utterly foolish, and you know, you've got the usual shots of um, Lauren Lauren Cohen walking around in her 
underpants down a down a darkened corridor and you think you know what if that's britain during a thunderstorm you'd be absolutely freezing you wouldn't be doing that you know just but they've got to do something to earn the money right yeah yeah exactly and that's what they did is rubbish so the the boys rubbish let's yeah. not spend any more time on that i think we've wasted enough time talking <laughs> about england and making fun of the director <laughs> Now, for those that are familiar with the podcast and familiar with Sean's work specifically, they will know that he has this, a really, really huge love of podcasts. My, my, my work? Yeah. Oh, that's very formal. Well, your work, I was referring to some of the other stuff that you do when not in this pod booth. <laughs> Sean, tell us a little bit about some of the other stuff you do. Uh, right, well, I write for uh, Cineworld, so you can find my writing on cineworld.com forward slash blog. I also write for Flickering Myth and Den of Geek. I do soundtrack reviews for mfiles.co.uk um, and you can hear my ramblings on film music with Mr Tony Black at a podcast called The Composers which is ongoing at the moment so is that enough stuff for you? And where can they find our podcast? They can find us on iTunes and at Cultural Mirrors on Twitter and culturalmirrors.com And Facebook? Yes, Facebook as well So if you ever need a, or if you fancy asking us a question, trying to find a a topic for us to ramble on for a little bit, then we're quite happy to do that. Um, Just drop us an email. You can do that at andy at culturalmirrors.com. Let us know if you've ever been to a a British country house that's that's occupied by a a tweed-wearing greengrocer. Yes, please either tweet us or drop us a message on Facebook. Um, If you are indeed a tweed-wearing greengrocer, (laughs) um, we don't mean you any (laughs) offence. So moving back to soundtracks, as we mentioned, Sean is a a huge lover of a soundtrack or two. I don't know whether you would have picked up on that during his reviews. And as soon as he's buried the lead so much, Sean, tell us about how much you love the High Rise soundtrack. I love it very much. Uh, I thought it was one of the best things about the film. Um, And actually, I've been listening to it a lot separately. I mean, a a great film soundtrack, you will always be able to listen to it on its own terms, away from the context of the film. Um, It's composed by Clint Mansell, who... um, is a really he's a really really interesting film composer. He's worked a lot with Darren Aronofsky. It's it's his collaborations with Darren Aronofsky for which he is probably best known. You think of things like Requiem for a Dream or Black Swan or Noah. Most recently, um, that was dire. No, I like Noah. No, Noah was not good. No, 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 Noah, Noah for you then. Noah, Noah for me. No, no, I, I liked it and I thought the score was actually one of the best things about Noah. That modernistic classical fusion. Um, Ray Winston on an arc. Yeah. I will build your heart for you. I would literally rather sit and watch Russell Crowe sing for two hours than watch Noah again. Oh, that's a stinging criticism if ever there was one. Yeah. But anyway, we're talking about Clint Mansell, not Russell Crowe's lack of singing ability. Yeah, sorry. Yep. Move, move on. Um, so, um, and he, he's, re- he's really come into his own in, in recent years. I mean, Clint Mansell's got a very, almost a very experimental, almost quite intellectual and often quite detached side to his his music i mean his music is often quite intense I mean, you think of he also did the score for the fountain which i think is a really underrated film and didn't get the love that it's over you did a little head wobble there do you not agree with me as usual i actually kind of do oh okay that's fair enough you take me by surprise that's why it was the wobble rather than <laughs> I thought it was an ambivalent head wobble uh, it was oh wow he's, he's got something right for a change yeah that was the sort of head wobble you get on those little figures that are attached to the front of car windshields you know the head wobbles around i am grouped there they go yeah um so oh good so you like the fountain now i thought the score for that film was, was very very good but it's a very fearsome and intense score what high rise does is high rise i think is one of mansell's most accessible scores to date primarily because of how lush and how operatic it is for the most part and the start the film starts off with um 
it's 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 obviously it's it's a score that's that's designed to pastiche the likes of Mozart and Brahms. No, not that Brahms, not the creepy doll. Oh damn! I was hoping for a creepy doll to show up and <laughs> haunt Tom Hiddleston. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a different film. Um, and the, the, it's it's done in that very lush classical pastiche style, and it becomes immediately apparent in the opening sequence of the movie where you get the residents of the high rise are going about their daily lives in seeming in this seemingly detached way that is obviously concealing like festering social anxiety and festering social paranoia and the the the, the score is basically telling you um it's enhancing the the, the gross slightly grotesque nature of what's going on and the sort of foolishness of like human nature it paints everything as being sort of somewhat slightly more operatic than than it otherwise would be and i think it does what a film score is meant to do which is that it adds an extra layer of meaning to the story. It's not just there to um, reinforce whether something is intimate or horrible. It's almost like it's suspended above the action. Um, and I think that the, the lyricism of it, out of the, the vast majority of the score, actually took me by surprise because Clint Mansell isn't often known for that. There are challenging confrontational textures in the scores. As as everything gets darker in the in the film, the score follows suit, but there are... There, there's one moment where the, the main opening theme is adapted for like, um, it's almost like a marching band's rhythm. And it, and it sounds very satirical, which is obviously the whole idea. The music is, is meant to be sort of cranked up to a certain level, which makes the film more interesting. Um, and I can't applaud um, either Ben Wheatley or Clint Mansell enough for coming up with one of the most interesting and provocative film scores in recent years. I mean, again, I, I do have a problem with the SOS Portis head cover which that's had a bit more press if only because you know the song SOS is probably more famous than Clint Mansell is as a composer but I'd say you know put that to one side Clint Mansell's score is what is the really really interesting thing here and it really it it it, it did what a film score is meant to do which it engrossed me further in the world of the movie the the film the score was telling me more about the nature of the story, even when you know seemingly not very much was happening on the screen, and that is what film music is meant to do. It's meant to be an extension of the narrative rather than a mere supporting of it. And I thought it was it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And the film again, High Rise, which I don't think you can recommend enough. I can't. Excellent. So for <laughs> those that can't get to the cinema as quite as often as uh, Sean or myself, or indeed Sean for the most case. Um, <laughs> Those will sit at home and uh, hopefully watch a lot of quality television. Now, recently we've been spoiled, spoiled, we say, by Netflix. That, that was done with a very sort of camp eye roll up to the ceiling. Let's but. not let's not start talking about my campness, otherwise... <laughs> we'll be here all day. Bang. <laughs> so, Netflix have given us, in the past couple of weeks, a full series of House of Cards, as well as the second series of Daredevil. Now, House of Cards, um, I will be honest, I've completed it. It is wonderful, it's brilliant, it's possibly the best series since the first um it's tense all the way through there is a specific moment that happens around episode seven or eight um which changes the course of the season um you think it's going in one direction and bang complete misdirection really really good um so can't recommend that highly enough however daredevil series two was dropped so as regular listeners to this podcast will already know um i was a huge huge fan of daredevil um it the character in himself, he is very, very much uh, a Catholic. Uh, he's He almost is begging for forgiveness in every single thing that he does. He's a blind superhero in Hell's Kitchen. So, 
in the second series of Netflix's uh, Marvel uh, collaboration, he is almost set up against the Punisher. Um, the Punisher is much trailed. He's been in every promotional material possible. So for people who don't know, who's the Punisher? So the Punisher is a guy called Frank Castle. Um, without going into too much information, because they do give you a lot within mm. the show, um, he he does have a backstory. He is a very unforgiving level of vigilante. There is one um, one thing that was in the trailer that actually says specifically, "You are one bad day away from being me." Which, Yikes! Yeah, um, which basically it it goes back to more that the fact that Daredevil will not go that extra distance, whereas Punisher will. He's there is black and white as far as he's concerned. If you have done wrong, you pay the price. Whereas Daredevil, obviously Matt Murdock being a lawyer, he believes a lot more in the justice system. So he he goes up against the Punisher. They're almost on the same side of a coin, but at the same time, two very different sides. So um, the the second series kicks off with that. Uh, about halfway through the second series, it does begin to lose its way a little bit. Um, this with the the introduction of a, another trailed character who you didn't realise was in this. No, and you spoiled it for me. Well, yeah. So I don't really want to do that for anyone else. No, just no. in case. No, just but, for me. Um, just for my benefit. Yeah, I spoil. I spoil stuff for you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> You do it for me all the time. Yeah, I do actually. Yeah, it's true. Without even realizing. But um, <laughs> so, Daredevil series two is really, really. It, even saying it loses its way a little bit towards the end, it is far superior to pretty much any other TV show that's out there at the moment. Um, it's really, really entertaining. It's really, really gory, and there is a scene in there to match and top the hallway fight from the first season. Daredevil is available now on Netflix. Now, one of the things we talked about in terms of uh, trailers on the podcast was when we first had the the initial taster for the X-Files when it was returning. Uh, Sean has been a massive X-Files fan for years and years and years. Now the series has concluded. What were your thoughts? Mm, What a damp squib. Um, It's a really funny one. You know, it's almost like when you have a nostalgic affection for something for a particular film or series series, then it comes back. And you know when you get a sense of the, the strains trying to get that magic back, you know, you can practically see the thing straining at the seams in order in order to try and get back what it what it was. Um, and that definitely happened with, with the X-Files here. And I think the, the thing is with the X-Files, it was very much of its time. I mean, it started in the early 1990s when the idea of conspiracies and paranoia against the government, it really struck a chord. And also the idea of, Scully Gillian Anson being you know a, a prominent female character on TV like that at the time was very very revolutionary. It's sorry you're you're, no, you, you're I, I thought you were going I thought I was nodding in agreement. Yeah yeah. Um but the thing is what what they've obviously they they the, the X-Files finished in 2002. It's it's now um 2016. A lot of stuff has happened in between and the culture has shifted. Um, the way we consume media has been sh- has, has shifted completely. There's a lot of ground that they've had to catch up on. Um, the X Files was always very convoluted. Anyway, the whole my- mythology episodes they referred to, which are the overarching thing, were always really the most, almost the most head banging and incoherent and least interesting thing of them. And the problem with this series is it's only been six episodes long, and they've tried to contain a sense of that mythology within it. They could barely do that across nine original series, let alone six episodes of one brief run. Um, but that 
wouldn't be as much of a problem for me if I thought that the standalone episodes, the Monster of the Week episodes are referred, as they're referred to, were any good. And sadly, only one of them in this series was any good. Episode three. Yes, and that's written by Darren Morgan, who only wrote a smattering of episodes throughout the history of the X-Files and is seen as one of the great creative geniuses behind it. He wrote the comic episodes of them, like Humbug. Um, and the X-Files was really, really good at sending itself up. That episode with Reese Darby from Flight of the Concords was great. That was fantastic. The rest of it, my goodness me, I mean, uh, if it worked at all, it's because David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson clearly love returning to these characters. They're, they're both signature roles for them. Um, the whole incessant, you know, referring to apps, you know, they have to constantly refer to the nature of the time in which we're living. Like, just just drop it already. You know, people have been using apps for a long time before this series started. Um, that got a bit tiresome. And I just think it just it just bogs down in um, a supernatural miasma of, of stuff that didn't make any sense and wasn't interesting. So I, I was disappointed, I have to say, and I say that as a big X-Files fan. And obviously we were, were training that much before the, the series came around yeah. and uh, it's slightly unfortunate that that's where you have landed. Yeah. Anyhow, so... From my spacecraft. Well, no comment, no fight <laughs> from me here. So that will just about do us for the Culture Mirrors podcast for this week. Uh, coming up over the, the coming weeks, we will uh, return with another podcast. Is there anything big coming out that you can think of? That I think there is, isn't there? Is, is it certain Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice? Zootropolis, that's right. Yes, Zootropolis yes that's the one. Um, yeah, yeah, there, there, there is the Batman film as well. We just have not had very good reviews. Well, reviews can be wrong. But... Uh, Do you it, know what didn't have good reviews when it was released? What? Blade Runner. Do you know what else? 2001 Space Odyssey. Don't bring those up in the same sentence as Batman v Superman. Cause you never know. They it, might be great. Mm. Uh, it's directed by Zack Snyder. Which yeah. is not a reason to be cheerful. Dawn of the all. Dead was all right. Dawn of the Dead was actually really good. That's the only decent film that he's done. He hasn't done anything else that's good. I disagree. Yeah. And I'm I'm frankly appalled that the director of Sucker Punch is now spearheading the DC movie universe. I'm just I I, I I'm I'm actually staggered to be honest. We'll get into this a lot more. Yeah, after yeah, we've both seen yeah. The this film, is a I little teasy. I mean, bear in mind, none of us have seen, neither of us have seen it yet. But I'm not optimistic. But Zootropolis, I cannot wait to see that. Yeah, well, Disney film. Yeah, so I'm in. Anything and else coming out? I will. I will watch Eddie the Eagle when it's officially out. So cool, excellent. Yeah. And you will either agree with me or be wrong, one or the yeah. other. And we'll we'll get into the um, nature of the score properly in our next one. Yeah, great. Looking forward. to <laughs> It is that great. One. It's brilliant. Looking forward to that one. And where can, where can people find us again? Uh, they can find us on iTunes, look up Cultural Mirrors. They can find us on culturalmirrors.com, on Twitter, at Cultural Mirrors, and on Facebook. And if they want to send an email to the show uh, to be read out or to ask us a question, then feel free to do so. It's andy at culturalmirrors.com. So that will pretty much do us for the Cultural Mirrors podcast this week. I'm Andy Williams. I'm Sean Wilson. I'm going to try and get a horse up a high rise. See you later. <laughs>